As a Jedi, we were trained to be keepers of the peace, not soldiers. But all I've been since I was a Padawan is a soldier. Well, I've known no other way. It gives us clones all a mixed feeling about the war. Many people wish it never happened. But without it, we clones wouldn't exist. Well, then perhaps some good has come from all of it. The Republic couldn't have asked for better soldiers. Nor I, a better friend. There's over 150 hours of Star Wars on film. This is the Star Wars Binge, where we select, order, and elevate the best 40 hours of the Star Wars canon. My name is Jeff Cook. I'm a philosopher in Greeley, Colorado, and in Chicago, Illinois, is the Daniel Mothershed. Playwright, comedian, and pop culture enthusiast. That's true. This is me. We are joined today by a guest, Dan. Yes, we are. Did he just call you Dan? We have the great TJ Wilson. He, yes. Jeff, Jeff Cook is one of the two human beings that that does not bother me when they do it. <laughs> we're great. Well, we are... <laughs> We're joined today. <laughs> we're joined today by a guest who is T.J. Wilson, who is a personality typing expert in Greeley, Colorado, and lover of all things pop culture. Hooray! <coughs> welcome, welcome. Hey, this is uh, this is the second time we've recorded with T.J., but it is the first time in our binge that we are chronologically having a guest. Okay. And uh, again, in true Star Wars yeah. appreciation, we have just completely gone out of order with this it's perfect is there any other way to do it if you're going to honor star wars no i believe that this is the way (laughs) this is the way this is the way today we're covering not only the third episode in the siege of mandalore arc but the penultimate episode of the entire clone wars animated series uh live tv series use their second to last episode as their high points Breaking Bad does this, Shit's Creek does this. I just went through The Stand, which started out amazing and really s- wasn't very good at the end. Oh, no. But they did that. Oh, good to know. I was going to say, I had high hopes for that, but I guess I'll... They really were doing stuff so well They were uh, the, for the first four or five episodes really well. And then they got to Las Vegas and everything cratered. Such is life. <laughs> but in terms of penultimate episodes, these these can be quite monumental TV events. You guys got a favorite penultimate TV episode? I I have to acknowledge the the sort of like the weirdness and the the grief behind me saying my favorite uh, because it's the very last episode of Buffy or the the second to last episode of Buffy, like season seven, the. I think 21 or 22, the like very second to last episode of the whole show. Um, and I say that with grief because bad news this week, it, <laughs> lots of things have come out, man, this has oh. been a bad week for Joss Whedon fans. <laughs> it's really upsetting. Yeah. But anyway, this, this show, uh, this episode, like in the whole season, she's, she's like the big bad is the first evil. And, this is the episode where it really turns and it's like, Oh no, we're going to win this. Okay, great. Cool. And, uh, angel comes back and she finally like throws down with one of the, um, 
one of the greatest and worst characters of the whole series, which is played by Nathan Fillion. So this like <laughs> terrible. Oh, man. This is just making me want to go rewatch Buffy. Oh, it's so good. But yeah, it's a great episode of television. And the the real twist is that the villain of that series turned out to be right, Joss Whedon. Right. That is the is the unfortunate twist. And and they played that that was a long play on that one. Yeah, so. that's that's masterful storytelling, unfortunately. <laughs> Whoever's your favorite character, they're going to die. So, <laughs> beloved characters, beloved careers. We may have to jo- That guy's a master. We may have to do a standalone episode on what do we do with Artists who we love and in their private lives or or even in the creation of their shows, just awful. Like, what do you do with those pieces of art? That sounds like a very complicated and difficult public consumption conversation. (laughs) I think I'm busy that day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you got a favorite penultimate episode, too. (laughs) I do. I do. I wrote down two because I, I was having difficulty deciding between them. The the second to last ever episode of Thirty Rock, call, which mm-hmm. an episode which is called Hogcock, is a brilliant episode because in a show that is mostly situational and ridiculous, and the characters, I would argue, mostly learn nothing. It's one of the few episodes where you see character growth and development and realizations for for Jack and Tracy and Jenna and all these absurd characters that they get advanced a little bit towards towards realizations. And then it's it's actually brilliantly undercut by the final episode of that series, which is just ridiculous and kind of flushes it all away in a perfect uh, 30 Rock way. Boom. And then my other one is the second to last episode of the first season of The Good Place, where... where um, you realize that uh, Kristen Bell's character has to make a decision whether she goes to the bad place or her friends go in her place and she tries to run from it and then comes back and ultimately that kind of sets up what that entire series is going to be about without being super heavy-handed. Right. TJ, I thought you were going to do a How I Met Your Mother. No. I heard the penultimate episode. That was was a reveal. Nah. Uh, the whole last season is a mistake. So, oh, okay. A yeah. huge misfire. Well. I'll yeah. cut that one then. <laughs> <laughs> my my favorite is uh, from uh, the Game of Thrones. One of my favorite movie or TV show viewing experiences was watching the end of the third season with my wife. I can't recall seeing my wife as mad as she got during the penultimate episode of season three in which uh, some oh beloved God. characters um, go to the wrong Go to, the, go to the wrong wedding. And uh, she, she was so pissed. She was pissed for a week. I even yeah. knew it was coming, and I was super yeah. mad. Still. Yeah, I get that. But, of course, the episode right here, not only the penultimate episode of this season, but of perhaps all of Clone Wars animated, this is a hugely rewatchable episode for me. I just love the hell out of this one. I've said this to Daniel in the past. This whole arc is incredible but there are just high points of star wars beauty going on in this we are on season seven episode 11 of the clone wars this is the third episode of our binge and it's called shattered before we get into this any any thoughts Rewatching this episode for me was really interesting because the whole episode just feels fatigued by the clone wars in general like you just get a sense that all of these characters Mostly, all these characters are just ready to be done. Mm. Like there's, there's just a deep sense of like emotional tiredness happening. That that I, 
I could have been projecting a little, just, but, <laughs> but I also felt like in the episode, it just seems like most of these characters are exhausted yeah, and, and wish they could, could be doing something else, but also kind of maybe wish they were all able to do something else. Yeah. Well, and to that point, the, this whole arc has to go together. Like I, I, I forgot about the arc when I was rewatching this episode to prepare and I got about 10 minutes in. It's like, I do not feel the weight that they are portraying on this. So I had to go back and I had to watch nine and 10 to get into it and to like, Oh Mm -hmm. yeah, that's why everyone feels the way that they do. And it really is the, the culmination of, of years of this terrible war and like you can tell that they're feeling like they're they're ready to be done. They've had some significant victories. Like these characters went through something where it's like they finally had real victories and it's like, man, can we just be done now? Ugh. You can tell they're tired. That's a stellar observation. I'm sure you guys have seen those pictures of warriors who are going to war. They look green and then the picture of them same outfit same room four years later and just they they have aged 15 years as you were talking about that uh, we'll bring it up frequently in the binge i'm sure because it's one of my favorite movies of of war is but is uh 1917 has a real thematic undercurrent of that of we just want this war to be done and we'll talk about this throughout the bench is what is what is this whole war about what are we seeking to achieve and what's the toll that it takes on our real human beings yep well this episode begins again with the green lucasfilm limited symbol and that deep red clone wars logo pops up and it says part three shattered and the music has a very military film kind of feel we see gunships descending to mandalore and i was real curious tj daniel and i have talked about this a handful of times but what what are your thoughts on the difference of the intros here this set of episodes the arc it it starts different than all the other clone wars episodes right um did you did you have an emotional feeling or reaction to that it it immediately communicates that this is this is going to be heavier and more important mm. than what has come before. Like the, this, it it opens with the feeling that it is a penultimate. Like we are leading to the end game if we're not already in it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I don't remember what I said in in recording our our episode about episode nine, but but yeah, I mean it 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 feels like it's setting up the end of something. Like there's yeah. a, there's a sense of foreboding. I suppose if we're Star Wars fans, we know what's coming up because they've already given us lots of hints that this arc is paralleling the timeline of episode three. And we know what happens in episode three. Going into this for myself, especially if you haven't seen Rebels, you don't know what's going to happen with the major players. You don't know if, uh, you know, you know that Jedi are killed in Order 66 and here is a Jedi on screen who you really care about. Who is and not in any well, of the movies. Yeah, So right? What happens to her? I have the luxury of sort of backing into this. So there's a there's a couple of characters, because I've watched things like The Mandalorian, there's a few characters where I'm like, well, at least I know these three people are fine. Sure. <laughs> so be a little more calm. But but it is it is, I do have several questions which I have been told that Rebels will go on to perhaps answer. 
But for those who are, if you did just watch this chronologically all the way through, this is a fantastic. Well, I suppose if you watched it chronologically, you wouldn't you wouldn't have the anticipation <laughs> of episode three. You would have to watch episode three before this to really feel the tension. But they have uh, director is certainly setting up that this is a tense moment because we haven't seen what happens to Ahsoka in Order sixty six. We haven't seen what happens to Rex in Order 66, and lo and behold, they're in the same room. What could go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Order 66, that's what could go wrong. Oh, right. The music is clearly setting a tone, and we're we're emotionally feeling, yeah, again, it's got that military feel, but it's also kind of down. And we cut to the ground on Mandalore, and we see a member of the 501st has Gar Saxon in cuffs, uh, who is the leader of Maul's forces on Mandalore. Bo-Katan steps into frame, looks up at Ahsoka's gunship descending to a platform on Sindari, which is the capital of Mandalore. And referring to Maul, Bo-Katan says, You actually captured him. I'm impressed. That is what the Council wanted. Still, you succeeded where many have failed. I've learned from the best, including you. I wish I was good at something other than war. Your people need a new kind of leader. My sister tried that. I never understood her idealism. And we see refugees and citizens who are clearly in pain. And we hear further character development here of Duchess Satine. Any thoughts with this opening scene? Yeah, this this is the first moment where I feel like you really hear and see some of that, some of that battle fatigue coming from a character who we know is a general is a warrior in in Bo-Katan where even she is saying man I really wish there was something else that I was good at other than doing this because because you're seeing you're really seeing the aftermath of you know the thing that movies don't show us with with war films where once the battle is over and everybody's leaving and all the buildings are destroyed and all the people are displaced and everything like it you're kind of seeing the post-war and you're seeing this general character remorsefully admitting I think that she wishes there were other things she could be good at. Yeah. And and those of us who have seen other things know that she she's never going to do anything else because she goes on to just continue fighting. Mm-hmm. Well, the, I, I know that there are other more significant stories that, that try to flesh this out, but the one that really comes to mind for me is like the arc of Captain America over the course of the Avengers yeah. films through Phase 4. And like like the big question that he's trying to answer is, what do I do when I'm not a soldier anymore? And And she's... She's capturing this in a really, like, her own kind of way. Like, I wish I was that good at something other than war because we need, my people need to have a future, and that needs to not include war. But I don't know where my place is in that. Very interesting. That's an excellent call. Oh, I'll, we'll be curious. I mean, at the time of this recording, we've seen the second season of The Mandalorian, I'd be curious if a, a lot of what they want to do with Bo-Katan moving forward in Star Wars doesn't center on that. Who is this person after the war is over? Or I don't know who she would be fighting anymore for Mandalore aside from Din Djarin. Oh, that's, I think that's what they're setting up. It's going yeah. to be the, the fight for the, reluctant or not, it's going to be the fight for the Darksaber yeah. is, is what I think season three will significantly be. She'll need to enter a time of apparently reconstruction on mandalore which wasn't there a line like that they had like bombed mandalore you gotta be kidding me 
Mandalore, the Empire turned that planet to glass. <laughs> there, there is a, there is a definite dark characterization of what has happened because notice, notice how the timeline would work here. We see Mandalore being retaken by Bo-Katan, so she, she is going to establish some sort of presence there. Now, Rebels is going to go further into this. But eventually the Empire is going to take back over the whole galaxy. And there is something that they haven't shown us yet in terms of Star Wars film. And that's what happens with Imperial forces and Mandalore. And so the Empire, for example, taking all of the Beskar and turning it into those, what do you call those? The, the credits? Yeah, that we see in the beginning of The Mandalorian. They've clearly come in, destroyed elements of that culture of that planet taking their wealth and that's where Bo-Katan is when we see her you know in the future well no like I'm not very good at holding timelines like this in my head especially because the timeline of Star Wars is so convoluted but I feel like Mandalore is destroyed like I would say they, they talk about it in the same way they talk about like Alderaan in in the the original films like it's sure yeah I, I, I agree with you and, and the mandalorians are sort of spread out they've colonized other planets but like mandalore itself i'll look that up yeah. when i'm editing i'll if uh if, if there's something worth adding here i'll put it in they're staging weapons that have been bought and sold with the plunders of our planet we're seizing those weapons and using them to retake our home world once we've done that We'll seat any Mandalore on the throne. That planet is cursed. Anyone who goes there dies. Once the Empire knew they couldn't control it, they made sure no one else could either. Don't believe everything you hear. Yeah, if if that is the case, then it's certainly like she... We have to find out her role in Mandalore's future in the sense of rebuilding. Like, like what part does she play as as a leader, as... Like, is she trying to bring Mandalorians together in the context of needing a new home or needing to rebuild the planet? I don't yeah. know. Yeah. There's, there's some overlap there with... There's going to be a whole lot of Tolkien going on in some of these characters, but we might want to read in to Bo-Katan's character that of uh, the dwarf in The Hobbit who leads... Thorin? Yeah, Thorin. I could only think of his real name. <laughs> it's like Richard Armitage. <laughs> he is a small guy. Thorin, in the same way Bo-Katan is seeking the Darksaber, Thorin is seeking the... Uh, Arkenstone. Real similar in, in terms of reclaiming a homeland. I have this item that has historic uh, value and gives authority to its possessor. To, to just continue the Marvel... Uh, comparisons that that we've already drawn in this episode and of course in in several other episodes it does make me think a little bit of thor and valkyrie a little bit having to sort of replant and reestablish asgard and new asgard yeah um and and valkyrie kind of becoming the reluctant leader from somebody who everybody thought was a better leader so the yeah. thor to satine only would i draw that parallel for this met this metaphor and then her and and valkyrie having to kind of take being these warriors who take over and maybe want to find a new way to lead. Yeah, I love that. I suppose that's, I wonder if that's more of a medieval tradition, 
this person has the crown or this person has the throne. I suppose in our own culture, there was a big question on whether or not the former president would leave the White House. It's like whoever possesses this building somehow has the authority. You know what I mean? In terms of like symbols. Anyway, Darksaber is interesting on this front. Rex steps forward. Commander, I have the council waiting. And Master Skywalker, were you able to contact him? He was at the meeting when I left to get you. Go on, I can handle this. And Ahsoka and Rex leave to join a communication and we're gonna see some of the Jedi Council having a meeting. We see Mace Windu, we see Ayala Sakura, who's the blue Twi'lek Jedi. We see Kayati Mundi, who we're gonna meet soon in another big episode in the binge. He's the Jedi with the elongated head. And we see Master Yoda. And all of this dialogue parallels a scene from episode three. But here, we're watching it as a hologram. Real interesting move there. I, I love the crossover work. Like it, it, yep. it reminds you that this is part of a bigger story. And, uh, and it's like, wait, I've heard this dialogue before. Oh, yeah, this is, I remember seeing them actually saying this, the, like the like live actor saying this in a different film. And now I want to mm-hmm. go watch that. I, I, I felt the same way and, and have definitely said this before, I think, too. But it just, it, it does such a really great job expanding the world mm-hmm. and expanding the universe. You know, you, you only see such a small amount of it. In episode three, a small amount of, of orders that are executed and conversations, and you hear talk of other things that the the Jedi and the, the Council are involved in, but you never really see it. So it's just kind of cool to get that world blown up mm-hmm. and, and see the effects of the things we know from the films happening throughout the galaxy. Yeah. The only other show that I can think of that really does this kind of stuff is actually, again, Tolkien. Tolkien spends chapters and chapters and chapters on somebody's story, and then you'll see big events take place, and then he'll cut over to some other characters, and he'll spend chapters and chapters and chapters on those characters, and then the same big event will take place. Mm. And you're like, oh, there's the the crossover. Right. And, and sometimes he'll do that with the Palantirs. Uh, Palantirs function real similar to the holograms here in terms of communicating information and getting people in the right places and spreading what's known. But I wonder if they're not borrowing some there. Sure. I would just say if it's done well, it can like even, even in Endgame, the Avengers Endgame movie where you sort of see sideways versions of events we've seen yeah. throughout all the other films kind of culminating into one. Just it, it's, if, if it can do it the right way, it's really exceptional storytelling and it answers questions you might have and gives you more information than you had before and just sort of deepens and enriches uh, the world. Yeah. Yes, that's true. And there's two big events in the MCU that do that. It's the attack on New York and then the snap. How does everybody relate to the attack on New York? That, that spins into Daredevil and the stuff that they did on Netflix with the... Uh, Defenders. Thank you. <laughs> and, it, and it even, I, I won't say too much because I don't know listeners nor the two of you, but I mean, it's its affecting Marvel stories that are being currently told right now. Yeah. And yeah. and it's very interesting to, it just it just keeps kind of enriching the stuff. Do I have either of you, do either of you know what I'm talking about? It's so good. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. I'm on, I'm through episode one. <laughs> Great. I'm, I'm trying to catch up. There's, 
There's f- there's five more. I was watching the stand. <laughs> this week was good too. Oh, holy oh. crap! This week is so good. This is worthwhile. New. What would you call this? This is a new element, I guess, to storytelling, isn't it? In terms of when you create a universe of characters, and you're not just focused on the hero and the hero's journey, but you actually are trying to paint. Here's the the whole of the universe. Then these sorts of events matter, or these sorts of communications matter. It's because we're talking about the whole timeline and this whole made-up history it's, it's new-ish i mean there i can think of a couple of shakespeare plays that have characters popping up in earlier versions of their story in, in a lot of the histories and they're the plays that nobody ever wants to talk about because they're boring hmm. the henry plays in particular you see you see falstaff a couple of times you see henry at younger and older versions I think Richard the Third is in there somewhere. I, I it's it's been a while since I've read or seen those, but I mean it, it's it's not that new. I just yeah. don't think it gets done very well. Yeah, I think I think the the new part is that we're seeing it executed in ways that we've never seen before. Yes, yeah. like the like like time travel. The I think Endgame is a, a perfect example because time travel. Hulk's line when he says either it's all a joke or none of it is. It's like time travel is is rarely done to to a degree where it's it's making fun of it while also doing advancing <laughs> the storyline in the way that it needs to and giving us these sideways glances at events we've already seen. I think I think those movies and Star Trek are maybe the two that I feel like do time travel right seriously and well. I I'm a huge Doctor Who fan and and. I, I think I'm the only one in this group who is, but the right. the, t- the the time travel in that is serious, but it doesn't really matter. So so I enjoy how it's handled. But yeah, I think Star Trek and and uh, the Marvel stuff have just done time travel the best and beautifully. Yeah, and in world building ways, like like expanding the universe and yeah. Bill and Ted still gets my vote. Um, so Mace Windu, <laughs> Bill and Ted is basically Doctor Who. <laughs> We see Mace Windu then giving a line that we'll see in episode three. I sense a plot to destroy the Jedi. The dark side of the Force surrounds the Chancellor. Coyote Mundi says if... If he does not give up his emergency powers after the destruction of Grievous, then he should be removed from office. That is true. The Jedi Council would have to take control of the Senate in order to secure a peaceful transition. To a dark place, this line of thought will carry us. Mm, great care we must take. That's exactly right. Ms. Mace Windu is saying the military needs to take over control of the legislative branch. That doesn't sound good. And that doesn't sound wise. Uh, it's likewise the case that you have an authoritarian who has a lot of power who's not giving it up. <laughs> what do you do? What a work of fiction this is. <laughs> the tensions that take place when you have breakdowns at this level you know, we, we obviously feel this in, in, in our culture and there's nothing, nothing wrong with saying that that's also what Lucas is speaking about. Cause a lot of his work with Palpatine is about his experience as a young man with Nixon. And what do you do? Well, everything about star Wars is political. Yeah. And, and, and I, and so many people seem to want to try to separate that from it. And, and that just, yeah. you lose so much of what the stories are if you try to make it these weird a political things and that that's just not what the story is. Yep. Talking in the fictional realm about how 
wars take place and even fictionalizing as well. We'll talk about this extensively here in the next few episodes, but you know, the clone wars period mimics and sometimes really engages some of the stuff that we see in world war two. As I said before, Lucas is really going to want to emphasize that stuff that's taking place in the original trilogy period has a lot to do with Vietnam. I, I think that they started out with the sequel trilogy going down that road of what does Iraq look like? What, what does it look like when you behead or when you hang the the strongman and then you have a power vacuum and all of a sudden you have new sorts of powers filling in those spaces? I find that real interesting. I hope they are able to do more of that because um, that's what's happened. Palpatine has died. And so, well, now what? Yeah, you get the you get the gangsters or the the really bad yep. versions of the the sort of scary bad versions of the bad guy in control that are able to rush in because cause that guy was scary enough to keep those people away. Yep, right. And that's that's a real common story told in the 20th century from you know stuff that happened in Yugoslavia to stuff that happened in Iraq to I mean we could go down the list. Yeah, pick a decade. Right there, there you go. In episode three, the scene ends cutting to Anakin here entering Palpatine's office. But in this episode, this scene is extended and Ahsoka and Rex enter. I understand your mission was a success. Yes, I have Maul in custody. I will escort Commander Rex when he delivers him to Coruscant. A great service to the Republic. You have done. I did my duty as a citizen. Not as a Jedi. No. Not yet. Thoughts on this? Yet doesn't feel very clear. Like it like it mm-hmm. it, it to me it feels like it would make more sense and then having seen her in Mandalorian Granted, she was not able to rejoin the Jedi Order, but but to me, it does not seem very clear and definitive to say oh, I'm not doing that yet. Mm-hmm. Like there, it's like okay, so so at some point maybe you'll come back. Great, we'll we'll wait for you. Whereas it just this it didn't. I don't maybe it didn't work for me. I I think it's really important here to to think about um, like like the the Jedi Order is so many things, but but the thing that we need to the lens through which we need to view it here is religion yep because she to me this communicates i am a believer but i'm not ready to come to your church again yeah that's what i see here also oh see i didn't even think about it that way i like that yeah like like she so much of her story is coming to to grips with the fact that the jedi order isn't perfect and there's a lot of hypocrisy on board. Like, like the fact that immediately before this, the strong man in the room says, we will have to take control of the entire universe if this other guy doesn't <laughs> give it up. <laughs> right. It's like, the, isn't the whole point of the Jedi Order to keep the peace? And now you are advocating for becoming the rulers of the universe. And and so so she comes in, and that's part of her arc is coming to terms with, like maybe the Jedi Order isn't the best representation of this religion. Well, and I'll be honest, I thinking about the the Jedi or even the Force as a religion, which is something I've talked about a great deal before, 
with this series, I don't really think about them in that sense because they are so militaristic and right. political mm-hmm. and just thinking about it as a religion, you, I at least don't. Right. In the, in the same way you think about it with like Donnie Yin's character in Rogue One, the Force is definitely a religion for that guy. Right. Yeah. Whereas the, in this series, it doesn't it doesn't feel like a religion. It feels much more like a, a militaristic and political power. So I guess my brain hadn't even gone that direction. Well, but that's but I like that. But I like that a lot. That's part of the point. I mean, that's that's yeah. All, what she knows about the Jedi Order is that it is militaristic in this time. That changes that whole scene for me and makes me like it a whole lot more sure. from from her perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Again, historically speaking, I see a lot of the medieval tradition in the Jedis. They've been around for a thousand years and they've been peacekeepers and they have this chivalric tradition and they have a way that they influence peace in the for the common good. That's that is the tradition of the night. Mm. But when the modern period comes in and we discover science and we discover how to create different types of weapons and we learn how to clone super soldiers. It's a right. whole new element that pops in, and and even the birth not of uh, you know the what would you call it uh, monarchy, but now you have representative government and how representative governments can get co-opted. The, and, she, and she's falling there. She's one of the latter knights, and yet she's born into that new world, that new modern world. And like like zooming zooming out a little bit and and knowing. Like knowing the future of this story, that like Palpatine is actually the one orchestrating the war from both sides of it. <laughs> like it's she, she has a perspective that everyone on the council seems to be missing. That like they are all just going along with what is eventually going to be the destruction of the Jedi Order. Yeah, from multiple fronts. Not only literally are they all going to be killed. But Mm -hmm. the fact that they are the generals in this war in the first place is itself a destruction of the Jedi Order. Mm. And, And Palpatine has orchestrated this and all of these like supposed to be like filled with wisdom beings are just they're just along with it because they are supposed to be protecting the peace. Like her perspective is like this is not what the Jedi Order is for. Completely. That's an outstanding thought. I hadn't thought about this in terms of religious traditions that are handed power, specifically military power. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to have our priests lead the the frontal assault isn't, you know, isn't something you normally hear. But by the time we get to the original trilogy, Yoda is stripped all that away and it's going back to the very basics of here's what the force is, how it it binds everything together, surrounds us, and moving completely away from its how do how do I exer- exercise power? It's find yourself grounded in reality first, mm-hmm. and that's where Yoda's at at that point in time. You know what I mean? There, right? Yeah. Um, I it's, wonder it's if the it's the Rogue One mantra too. The uh, the I am one with the Force, and the Force is with me. Like that feels like it puts it all back into a very religious you're nothing outside of this thing and that yeah. and that's all that matters as opposed to the the power and the authority and the ability to lead i guess yeah i suppose what i'm saying here is there's a common dis- discussion about you know a faith like 
you know, my tradition is the Christian tradition. There's a real question about like how much should Christianity influence politics? And perhaps it's the case that Palpatine knows that when I give you real political power and military muscle, it will actually destroy your the essence of your faith. You won't be grounded in the way that you should be. That might be something we're saying there. You know what I mean there? It's too bad there was no Republican document saying that their their democracy was built on the separation of church and state. Yeah, because that solved all of the problems. Yeah, what do you, did something happen? <laughs> there's a there's a there's one uh, sociologist I like who says something to the extent of uh, religion and politics are like ice cream and manure. Manure does great things. Ice cream does great things. You really shouldn't mix the two. That was his take. I thought that was kind of fun. But it could be the case that in order in order to destroy somebody, give them power. Strike me down, <laughs> you know, is something that, you know, I, I'm giving you, unleash your anger is, uh, is, is commonly where Palpatine is pushing people. I wonder if that's not what's taking place in terms of the grand scheme here. Anyway. No, that's, that's really interesting. Actually, I was hoping to speak with General Skywalker. I sent him to inform the Chancellor that General Grievous has indeed been located on Utapah. Windu, in Episode 3, tells Anakin... Deliver this report to the Chancellor. His reaction will give us a clue to his intentions. Yes, Master. And this will be the discussion where Palpatine then leverages Anakin's insecurities and unveils that he's a Sith Lord. And so Anakin says he will turn Palpatine over to the Jedi Council in Episode 3, and Palpatine as you'll know, says... You have great wisdom, Anakin. Know the power of the dark side. Power save back me. But, again, overlapping scenes taking place here. Ahsoka caring for Skywalker, Mace Windu using Skywalker and not caring about him. Any thoughts on that? I'm, uh, every time I watch this series, I'm I'm struck by how much more invested I am in Anakin as a character than I am in the movies. In part because I think the voice actor and the characterization of him in the cartoons is just better than Hayden Christensen did and, and then the script he was given. Like, the, it's, it's just more interesting and compelling and, and fun. Like, he, he's just more fun in the cartoon. But also... Mm-hmm giving us more context other than uh, Padme and Obi-Wan to actually care about Anakin. Like, yep. like Ahsoka is now the audience's lens of, of, of giving a crap about what happens to Anakin. And she's so compelling and she's so interesting. And clearly she, as, as TJ, you've talked about, and Jeff, I think we've talked a little bit about this, in other episodes as well like clearly she's very insightful and she she kind of represents the right way to do this thing and clearly there's something in this guy that she cares about right and if you care about her even though she's a you know fictional character if you really invested in and care about her there you think if she if she cares about this guy there must be something in him worth investing the time in and i've got and i went into this podcast and i went into this venture of of the star wars binge thinking this is not going to change my mind about anakin it's a horrible character horrible like just not interesting what and and slowly this has been changing my mind yeah i just say i do i do wonder if 
continually wanting to believe the best in Anakin is her moment of maybe sort of a blind spot in, in the moments as, as Jeff, as you and I have talked about Obi-Wan yeah. Kenobi sort of intentionally choosing to be blind and in saying, I'm not going to let my emotions cloud my judgment. He has already admitted that his judgment is clouded by emotion. And I wonder if that's happening here. I wonder if there's just a part of her that is unwilling to see what's actually happening with Anakin until it's too late because yeah. of how much she cares about him. One of the things that's interesting is on that front is that they're both going through journeys and Ahsoka leaves the Jedi Order before Anakin does. Uh, Ahsoka critiques the Jedi Order in ways that Anakin has not yet. They are two siblings with a really bad adopted parent. Yeah. (laughs) And what do you do about your terrible parent? And when, when that vacuum is created, Ahsoka has the emotional maturity to get to a place where she can stand on her own and Anakin doesn't. And I also think like in the comparison of her versus Obi-Wan, I think that Obi-Wan is unwilling to acknowledge that something's happening with Anakin until it's too late and then decides that he needs to fight Anakin. (laughs) Whereas she's unwilling to give up on Anakin and continues to fight for him. Yeah. Because she's not committed to the Jedi Order, she has permission to do that. Right. And right. Anakin's still, or uh, Obi-Wan's still fighting for his church. Right. You know, he's still he's still in that religious tradition and saying, well, redemption for Anakin means pulling him back into the system. I think, I, just, I, I guess all I'm saying is it, it feels like there's still some distance from what's really happening with with both of them with what's really happening with Anakin. I think there's some yeah. The hidden the hiddenness of his fears? No, I think there's I think there's some some unawareness of where Anakin is going and what he's doing. I think I think yeah. there's too much willingness to believe the best in him and fight for him and there's too much willingness to try to force him into this one thing and not enough like what is actually happening and what is the actual problem yeah. here. There's some there's with both Ahsoka and Obi-Wan, I think there's some there's some blindness happening there. We'll see this a handful of times that Kenobi and Ahsoka have real similar experiences of Anakin at points where Anakin, at great cost to himself or real danger to himself, will routinely put himself on the line for them. So, So clearly he's healthy and good and would always make the right decision. He saved my life so many times before. Right. We see that at the beginning of episode three. We're, we're not leaving Kenobi here. He seems to be all right. Leave him or we'll never make it. His fate will be the same as ours. That's dedication. Would you even think badly? And of course, he's hiding, he's hiding the source of his fears, which is his nightmares about his secret bride. Well, and I, I, I could be wrong about this. Again, the timeline is muddy for me, but I, I think that Ahsoka has been, like, because she left, she's actually been separated enough from him for long enough that she literally doesn't know what's going on, whereas Obi-Wan is ignoring it because feelings aren't supposed to be important. Sure. Yeah. We'll see this in some latter episodes. Obi-Wan's aware of their relationship. Again, at this point in time, we, we said this earlier, but Kenobi's really the only support system that Anakin has right. and he's been totally removed hmm. Ahsoka says Master Kenobi engage the enemy here then the war could be over soon 
That depends on the Chancellor. What do you mean? I'm sorry, citizen. These matters are for the Council to discuss. I understand. And Star Wars fans across the board lost their minds. <laughs> <laughs> I remember this was the thing coming out of this episode when it first aired. How many people were tweeting just vitriol and hate towards Mace Windu? <laughs> uh, in his defense, he's throwing it right back at her. Okay. Because like just seconds ago, she, he said, thanks for your service to the Republic. And she said, I did it as a citizen. <laughs> he's He's right to say you are not part of this discussion anymore. I'm sorry. But he doesn't say, you're not part of this discussion anymore. I'm sorry. He says, this is only for citizens because he's a dick. It it didn't, this one actually didn't bother me. In, in our last episode, really? I, brought, I brought up three or four moments where I'm like, I do not like the way these people are talking to this to this character. But this one just, it, it does feel like, well, I mean, it's it's not great, but it didn't. <laughs> upset me i was like i mean kind of like tj said i mean she did kind of opt out yeah and there's some things there's some things that only people with the members only jackets get to do yeah that's really surprising to me i would have <laughs> thought that both of you guys would be way more animated than i am on this like i'm but i i mean part of it is the fact that if windu just says okay here's what's up she's going to say what she learned about anakin from maul in the previous episode. This is one of the many points in time where if things broke just slightly different, Palpatine doesn't get power. But the fact that Mace Windu is a jerk here and wants to leverage it and get and get a, a rhetorical dig back on her, you're just a citizen, that's what creates a barrier to her actually saying, oh, and by the way, Darth Sidious is trying to take Anakin as his new apprentice to destroy. Sure. Well, and I like he's he's rude for sure. I'm not sure that he's wrong, mm -hmm. but or not wrong to sort of exclude her from top level conversations. But also, like how dismissive and sort of unappreciative they are about the fact that grown men who have full Jedi status have lost to Maul several times mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah and this citizen she's the one that finally caught him and they they don't they don't treat her and this is this is demonstrated throughout the whole story but because they are the council they don't treat her with the kind of respect that she has earned because they're the ones that are in charge of the rules yeah Totally, yeah, I agree. Again, Star Wars is about politics and power. Mm. It's manifest in that space. The good Star Wars stuff is, at least. <laughs> we'll talk quite a bit about Mace Window in the future, but just quick word on him. He's the second in command to, he is the apparent heir to whatever Yoda's position is. In fact, Windu was apparently the Jedi Council leader. Yoda had stepped out of that role elevated Windu and then the Clone Wars were so difficult Windu actually stepped out and elevated Yoda back into that position hmm. for some senior authority but very powerful Jedi certainly goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with Palpatine and would yeah. have 
killed Palpatine if if Anakin weren't there. So he's not a slacker. He he's another one of those characters that watching the movies you just wanted to see more of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it was a pairing of how interesting the character is, or I guess could have been paired with an absolutely phenomenal actor playing him mm-hmm. in the movie. And it just seems like such a early 2000s Star Wars problem. Bring in exceptionally talented people and waste them. I, as I'm doing the binge along with our listeners, I have not gotten to see much of him yet. So I'm hopeful for being able to see him do some of the things that he's kind of lauded for doing. You got any thoughts, Teach? I, I see someone who is very clearly strong, capable, willing to take charge, but also has a noticeable deficit in his inability to give a crap about other people. Yeah. Like like he's he's sort of like a bulldozer in a lot of ways. And and he would rather get the thing done than like this example, this this scene is a great example of like if he took the time to actually be a person to Ahsoka and actually and like care about her at all, then there would be relationship building there. Yeah. But if he was that type of person, then he wouldn't be the type of person that would have sent Anakin to be a spy when Anakin is clearly not okay with it. Mm. And it's I think that's the thing that in him and with the with the Jedi Order in general, and I think we have or will talk about this, the intentional removal of emotions and compassion and connection is not any way to have relationships with people and not any way to lead people or serve people like the inability to be kind like shutting down emotions doesn't really do anything other than turn you into kind of a dick right and that happens so often with 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 this guy with obi-wan with all of these characters where it's i've worked so hard to shut off my emotions i've also shut off my ability to connect and empathize with you and Therefore, I'm going to send you to your doom. I'm going to ignore this. We're not going to learn this. And catastrophic things happen. Right. Because they think they're doing such an amazing job not being swayed by emotion. That's it. Because I think Windu in some measure represents the worst elements of the Jedi Order at this time. And that's most clear with his lack of emotional intelligence. Yeah. But you know who has enormous emotional intelligence? Ahsoka Tano. It's Palpatine. <laughs> yeah. Is <laughs> in like how to how to emotionally abuse people? Yeah. In in terms <laughs> in terms of being able to engage where they're coming from, understand their feelings. <laughs> he is oh. deeply intelligent on those fronts. Now he's obviously a villain who who weaponizes fears and ambitions and love and love but he's he's emotionally but but he's got a emotional iq off the off the charts yeah, yeah? agreed a lot a lot of villains feel like that like they're they're really just yep. keyed into to what people deeply emotionally want or or mm-hmm. people's deep emotional despairs in ways that the heroes in a story really never are how do i weaponize your fears yeah just keep coming back to uh, contemporary issues, don't we? <laughs> the uh, Yoda says, Ahsoka, more to say, have you? A message for Skywalker, perhaps? No, 
Master. Thank you. I'll tell him myself when I see him. Here, Jeff, to, to push into what you said earlier, Jeff, this is her moment where she could have said some of what she, like, he, Yoda gives her the opportunity. Yep. To actually say some of what she could have said and what could yep. have been helpful. And she still chooses not to. Yep. I'll just, and I'll say it to him when I, when I see him. Well, you're not gonna. <laughs> that's, that's. Windu had shut that door in her face. Maybe that's what it is. I, I, I don't know, but but it just because it, it does feel like Yoda is, as we see in other episodes of the Clone Wars, Yoda has his moments of humanity and understanding that you need to be tapped into these things as well as these things, right? And it feels like he's trying to give her the opportunity here. Maybe that's me willing that into it, but no, I think that's what it seemed like. I think that's exactly it. And especially if we're fans of Star Wars and we know what's going to happen to Anakin, this is just one more of those moments where we're just like, uh, do the do the thing, right, 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 right. Say the two sentences. Right. And again, knowing what's coming, the incredible importance of not not waiting, like. She is anticipating that she's going to see him in a couple of hours. Mm. And instead, the whole thing is going to come burning down Yeah, before she even gets there. Yeah, that's right, because she's had course hunt right here. Right, right. They're literally on their way to yep. see him. Great storytelling. Yep. Make, it makes total sense in the whole package, and you can still elevate that moment. Oh, yeah, it's it's done very well because it's 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 so upsetting and frustrating. Yep. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> That's how you know it's done so well yeah. is because you're really really mad. Oh yeah. Totally. As a like, there there are moments in episode three where you are frustrated, but you are frustrated in the way the story is being told because it's not being told well. Whereas with this episode. Yeah you are frustrated because yeah because they've told the story so well and it's it's very skilled people are behind it where it's yeah i don't know if the if we've said this on on the air but it is one of the things that really the show creators was such a benefit to them they had seven years to think about how to stick this landing right they were rushing you know episode eight they really were rushing episode nine and (laughs) Notice the how different the quality is between episode nine and how they end and how they end the Clone Wars here after having six, seven years to think about, well, what do we really, how do we really want to pull this off? Well, and just one person is in charge of the Clone Wars. Yep. Well, uh, at this point. Yeah, I guess that's true. But also having. Has a team that really, that he has lots and lots of years uh, creative construction with but also uh, just having better writers like the the writing regardless of the rush or the what like really good writers can turn things around pretty quickly and have them be pretty exceptional yeah well Ahsoka says I'll tell him myself when I see him may the force be with you the hologram closes Rex comes in and says you didn't tell them what Mole said about General Skywalker no, I didn't. And here the music shifts hard to a style we haven't heard before in the Clone Wars animated. And this is music from that parallels episode three music as Anakin is debating what to do about his pregnant wife and his fears. And we know that Palpatine is a Sith Lord and Anakin's been told Palpatine can save Padme and the tension is heavy 
throughout these scenes because if we've seen episode three, we know the clones will be turning on the Jedi soon, and that's going to include Ahsoka. Anything we're saying here about Yoda and Ahsoka's conversation and that leading into this moment? I really appreciate... I. I, I like that the dynamic between the two of them acknowledges that there's still a connection. She still calls him master. He still calls her Padawan. She's mm. left the Jedi Order, and those titles are not necessary for either one of them. It's a good call. And I feel like in, in the guise of, like, in the vein of... of acknowledging the religious aspect of this like like she still has faith and yoda represents someone who she hasn't necessarily written off yet Mm -hmm. she may be done with the jedi order but but she's not done with the kind of wisdom that yoda represents and he also is not done with her Mm. because he's the one who's doing it right ish you know it's it's the it's the i reject the corporate side of your religion but there's always people you can think of who who represent that religion really really well as mm-hmm. we see in the first episode of the clone wars yoda is the one who is like you need this but you also need this and you also need this to be a good person right and i think his willingness to include her is here and 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 all the stuff you said as well which yep. which is good job yoda yep we cut back to a loading dock on mandalore and we see bo-katan escorting a large coffin-like holding cell towards Ahsoka and Rex. And the soldier uh, with her on the left is Ursa Wren, who was the spy that was referenced in episode nine. Ursa Wren is going to, just total side note, but she is the mother of a character who we're going to meet in Rebels named Sabine Wren. Uh, she's, uh, Sabine's a major character in Rebels, and we will assume in a lot of future Star Wars projects, a little fun teaser there in terms of the world building, the histories, and the generations of characters. Uh, I didn't remember that that's who that was, but I saw her face and was like, she looks familiar, which is, I feel like the first time I've ever said that about a cartoon. (laughs) (laughs) I should know this person. I've seen her before. Thanks for bridging that gap for me. The slab that Maul is in, this this casing that can apparently hold force wielders so that they can't use the force in it, feels a whole lot like the Han Solo slab to me. Right. Although Maul is awake, aware, and there's kind of a window where you can see his face. I thought that was a great touch. Yeah, it feels almost like the, because he's still aware, it feels almost like the plastic prison they hold Magneto in. Yeah, in, in X Men, like we're right. not gonna dehabilitate you really in any way. You're other than we're not gonna restrict you. You just can't really do the thing that you do, and that's how we're gonna imprison you. Yeah. Well, in the, the Bo-Katan references that like this is how Mandalorians used to imprison Force wielders, and now I really want to know a little bit more about that war. Yeah, you know. So we. We teased that last time, but it's worth restating. Like it's a thousand years prior. It's before the Sith reemerge, and Star Wars under Filoni loves, loves, loves bringing a Mandalorian and a Jedi together. So you see it here with Bo-Katan and Ahsoka. We're going to see it with Sabine Wren and with Ezra in Rebels. All of the soldiers, the clones look like Mandalorians and they're fighting alongside Jedi. 
when we get to Empire Strikes Back, we're going to see Vader and Boba Fett. And it's just these par- just consistent parallels. Hmm. Well, and just the fact of the Darksaber being the weapon that represents the leadership of Mandalore. Mm-hmm. And that's an overlap. Yeah. It's perfect. Uh, here's actually a fun fact. The, the Darksaber is created by a Mandalorian Jedi who's the only one. Sure. And, and, and like TJ, that's a, that's a movie I would love to see. Yeah. That war yeah. or those team-ups. Oh, that would be, that would be cool. Soka says, Impressive. I suspect even Maul couldn't get out of there. A relic of a bygone era when Mandalorians had reason to imprison you force-wielding maniacs. I love that line. Yeah, it's a good joke. <laughs> I love that line. It's delivered so perfectly, too. Like it's... Ahsoka counters. I thought your sister outlawed such devices. She did. This is the last one. <laughs> Bo-Katan's got a secret hidden stash she's not telling mom about. <laughs> of contraband? Yes. Oh, right, yeah, don't. It's only one. It's only one. <laughs> Just in case. You know. Ahsoka then steps forward so that the two are looking each other in the eyes and Bokatan reaches out her hand and she says something that with the music and assuming you're watching Star Wars chronologically is meant to add real tension and foreshadowing. Yub nub. <laughs> Keep calm and yub nub. That's what she said. <laughs> Yeah, that line made me laugh so hard <laughs> listening to the recording of episode nine. And keep calm and yub nub. <laughs> Sorry, continue. That's right. She says goodbye, Ahsoka Tano. Yeah, and I, it's uh, like the this is the second person in a row. Yoda said, "May the force be with you." Bo-Katan says goodbye, Ahsoka Tano. Clearly, Ahsoka Tano is going down at the by the end of this episode. Is I think what they want you to do. Yeah. I didn't necessarily come away with it thinking we're meant to think she's not going to make it out of this, but it does. And again, I'm watching this with a bit of a leg up from other people because I have seen The Mandalorian. So it, to, to me, it comes across as like they, they definitely want to give you the feeling that our connected stories are done. We're not going to see you again when this is over. Not necessarily because you're going to die, but it's like we have only come together because of this fighting that we are tired of and once it's done we're not pro- we're, we're not going to see each other again yeah you're not part of our club in the case of Yoda and Mace Windu and everybody else and you're not a Mandalorian mm. and, we're, and there's no reason for us to be together again yeah yeah that's that's how I felt about it as well there's I can see that they would be intending to give us a sense of foreboding regarding the possibility of Ahsoka's death, but I didn't feel it. I just mm. felt that, like, Bo-Katan is never going to see Ahsoka again. Mm. That's what that's what that meant to me. Yoda may never see Ahsoka again. There you go. Well, Ahsoka nods and walks back to a new class transport, which is one of those three-winged, trihedral-looking crafts. And we see it take off and depart Mandalore. And the director builds the tension as we see the interior of the ship and it is just bathed in red light and the camera is moving through it and it centers on Maul and we hear his breathing and we feel the tension and this should bring us back to much of 
what he said at the end of the last episode that all these soldiers are going to burn is what we said in our last episode Maul doesn't tell a lie in this whole in all of the series they arrive on a large Republic attack cruiser they enter the bay and we see 50 or so soldiers standing at attention as the slab encasing Maul is moved out by a squad of soldiers and they transport Maul to a cell on the ship and two clones stand guard and we see Ahsoka and Rex taking their place on the command bridge as the cruiser launches into hyperspace. And I actually clocked this. It's been four full minutes of ominous music by this point in time. Two and a half minutes without any dialogue. It just keeps going and going. And this is just really uncommon for this show. Mm-hmm. I think animated, animated television in general, like to, to yeah. just... To just use that quiet and, and music is you don't really see that a lot. There's there's clearly a weight that you're supposed to be feeling about current events, but also something is coming. Yeah. Yeah. And everything seems to settle into position at this point. And Rex and Ahsoka begin a conversation about what it's all been about. And it's it's not just this episode on Mandalore. It's this is a moment to just deconstruct all of this whole war. Rex says, Something on your mind? As a Jedi, we were trained to be keepers of the peace, not soldiers. Which is a Mace Windu line. But all I've been since I was a Padawan is a soldier. Uh, I've known no other way. Gives us clones all a mixed feeling about the war. Many people wish it never happened. But without it, we clones wouldn't exist. Then Ahsoka turns and says, Well, then perhaps some good has come from all of it. The Republic couldn't have asked for better soldiers. Nor I, a better friend. And then she salutes him. I find that really powerful. Lots of introspection, lots of we've suffered together. And on the on the rec side of things, we we've talked, or we'll go on to talk about identity for the clones is such a huge thing. Like the the, the identity that they're born with, but also the mm-hmm. identities that they create. So it's it's literally saying, it's an ego Montoya saying, I've been in the revenge business for so long, I don't really know yeah what I am now that this is. Oh, I mean, it's it's. The created and intended identity for this guy is this. Mm-hmm. And if that's going to be over, which they feel like it is, what's he going to do? Yeah, what's next? That's Bo-Katan's line about being good at war all over again. Mm. It's, just, it's just another moment to me where it's like everybody is tired, everybody is run down, everybody is just weary. Whether whether it's, oh, God, what am I going to do now that this is over? Or just, I really wish this is over. I'm tired of living my life, keeping the peace for other people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the few things that's lost by us starting the binge with this arc is the, is the relational depth between these two characters. And hopefully that is seen here because there is obviously emotional connection here between these two that is top shelf. And there is a lot of utility of language there's a lot of emotions being passed back and forth and connection this is not superficial hallmark card writing at all it's we have journeyed together kind of stuff well and you also it 
being in this moment without having the context. So this this arc starts with something important to this relationship, but also you need to back up a little bit farther to know that like she was part of she was a, a commander of this unit and and worked directly with Rex, who is in charge of the other clones for a long time and then in stepping out of the Jedi Order she essentially abandons them and when right. she comes back which is not necessarily a, like she's not coming back to the order she comes back to open arms and it's such a significant moment that that she is respected continuously because of her character because of the relationship yep. that she's built with with this team like that not knowing that she left and came back and there's there's still that relationship there like i think that's an important point um absolutely yeah yeah there's a yeah tremendous amount of reverence and and there's still the saluting and the the painting of the helmets i mean like clearly she's important right despite the fact that she left yeah like there's there's such relationship there and such mutual respect of having having fought together for a common goal and for the same reason like they're they're fighting like clearly these people are like some people go to war because all they want to do is fight some people join the army because they have nothing better to do some people do it because they actually want to that is a a a noble and reasonable way to express their desire to serve and protect others Mm-hmm. And clearly Rex and Ahsoka have had bonding experiences where they are on the same page for the same reasons. And like they've they've fought together, but they've also built that relationship together. It's the it's the brotherhood. Yeah. Not to use a gender specific word, but like it's it's the it's that sense of community that comes from doing something vast or extreme alongside of other people that is going to forever bond you with those people. Right. I've talked about it before. Like theater is one of those things where it's like, if you get together with people for five months and work really hard and cry and get injured and everything, like it's exactly the same as being in the trenches. That's not what I'm saying. (laughs) That is not at all what I'm saying, but, but just like like, ridiculous experiences kind of force people to pull together. Right. Some are less extreme than others. The situation I mentioned, very, very <laughs> preferable and easy. <clears throat> but I just mean, when you when you have worked alongside of people, you're going to be connected to those people for forever. Right. Regardless of if they leave, if they come back, if they leave again, whatever. Right. One of the things taking place for me here is these two characters are both have a high degree of goodness of heart. And throughout this whole universe the storytelling of this universe you're going to see all sorts of people with mixed motives and they need to develop and and grow but these folks not only have goodness of heart but they also have a a real worthy measure of maturity and so standing in a room alone together and then she giving him the salute and him returning it that's just a that's a powerful connecting point throughout the binge we're going to talk about tropes that we see in other films and other TV shows that get brought in. But I love the idea of the salute. This doesn't happen a whole lot in 
films. I th- I was really surprised when I look up the sites that I normally go to to hear. So here's the big long list. It doesn't happen very often, but there's a handful of movies and shows that really use it well. The, the first one that came to my mind, which I anticipated, and it was the one that I saw, is Few Good Men. And the Few Good Men, one of the characters is a Marine who's being charged with murder, and he does not respect his lawyer. His lawyer is played by Tom Cruise. And at one point, Cruise expects the, the soldier, whose name is Corporal Dawson, to uh, salute him. And Dawson just puts his hands in his pocket and sits down. And Few Good Men ends in the courtroom with the growth of the characters. Harold. Sir. You don't need to wear a patch in your arm to have honor. And Dawson yelling out. Ten hut! And saluting. There's an officer on deck. And uh, Cruz's character returning the salute. That was the closest, I think, in kind to this that I could think of. That there was like the 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 salute was about a, an emotional relational connection. That I just thought was real powerful. Do you do, can you guys think of any um, salutes on film that hit you? Yeah, the all I the two I thought of the first was the third rock from the sun salute. Very hard to describe in an auditory thing, like because you want to just do it. But but the third rock from the sun, uh-huh. Google it. Uh, and then the the um, to keep it slightly in universe, the spaceballs salute to to everybody uh, on the Empire. President Screw, salute! Hail Screw! <laughs> All hail President Screw! But it's essentially the the screw off hand gesture with a wave at the end. That's that was the first one I thought of when you said salute. I think about that. It's the making fun of fascists. Yeah, which is great. Well. Of all things, another in-universe, this was part of the list that I read, another in-universe salute is Luke, prior to jumping into the Sarlacc pit, salutes Jabba as kind of a up yours. But the salute also is is signaling to R2 to, it's time to launch the lightsaber. Oh, yes. Yeah, I, I didn't realize. I, I've never took that as a salute to Jabba, but that's interesting. I just assumed it as a... As a just R2? Yeah. I could totally be wrong. I need to rewatch it. That's what I always took it as. Like, we're done here. Cue, cue the force theme. That's funny. If that's the case, that's very funny. The only other one that really popped for me was, I don't know if you saw Scent of a Woman, but there's a scene in which um, Al Pacino's character, who's a blind veteran, has a relationship essentially with a, with a young prep school student. And the prep school student mocks him with a salute and even though Pacino is blind, he he can hear what had happened, and he goes over and forcefully instructs him. What was that? There's nothing. Next time, snap it out. Thumb to palm, index finger through little digit, smartly aligned. Shout to the hairline, down. Too many men far better than you have executed that courtesy and if you're smart you won't try it again and and that becomes part of that story their connection to each other and i just i I love that that image of it's kind of it's not a handshake it's an it's almost like a recognition you have done the job as a soldier well 
I also think of the only other one I can think of is it's not a salute in the the classical sense of a salute, but I, I also think at the end of Dead Poets Society, mm-hmm. with the with the kids getting up on the desks and saying, "Captain, my captain, sit down, Mr. Anderson." But I, like yeah. that's still very much a salute to me. Oh, that's a good call. Um, that one that one makes me cry every time I watch it. So yep. that's all I'm going to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the no, I think that's spot on. Yeah, the sal- the salute is like it's designed as a. It lives in the military and comes from the military as a as a a sign of of specific respect. Like under underlings always salute their the people who are over them, their officers, and that's mm-hmm. that's part of military. But it, it's become like pop culturally and and popularly, it's just become this this sort of like head nod. Yeah, I I don't have much to add because I I I'm not as much into military stories and whatnot but that like the its moment here is clearly like these two people who have only known their lives as soldiers are respecting each other in kind yeah this is part of our traditions they just said that they just said that they had all they knew is being a soldier Mm -hmm. in in clearly the most meaningful way like in, in the same way that like some people like hugging them or whatever like this this is the most meaningful way they can think of to say all that stuff to each other right and that's that's exactly what the end of dead poet society is it's 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 a respect of the impact that we that you have had on me as a teacher oh captain my captain you taught me to love literature and and this is that that is a salute it's just not in a, a military framework and i think that's what it is in a few good men too i think it's I'm not the world's biggest Tom Cruise fan, so so to me those those two moments in that are, are I feel like Tom Cruise always plays these characters that even though their rank is worthy of respect, their sort of immediate attitude are so like yeah I'm so important and you should immediately be genuflecting to me and there's this like I deserve your salute from from the guy at the very first moment it's like yeah maybe you do but also you're such a yeah. dick you don't and it's it's finally at the end you know he's proven himself and he's not the things that his attitude suggests and he's fine he's finally actually won the respect of those guys and that's the that's the only way they can think of to say thank you because you know <laughs> for for giving us our lives back yeah one of the things i read about salutes is that soldiers are told you don't salute the person you are saluting the rank mm. the rank of the person is what you're honoring before you dawson is saluting Cruz, and here Ahsoka is saluting Rex. It's not about him being a captain or a commander. He's been he's been elevated, and it's not about her um, receiving a salute in return as a commander. They're saluting each other as soldiers, and as and, and actually, good-hearted people. Yeah, that just makes me think of the scene in Good Morning Vietnam where he doesn't salute the guy who's the head of the base, and and he he's like, you know, you'll salute me when you talk to me. Yes, sir. Sir. Do you see anything on this uniform indicating an officer? What does three up and three down mean to you, Airman? End of an inning. <laughs> That's all that made me think of. Fun, fun fact on the fascist side of things. Apparently, <laughs> Americans used to salute the flag the way that Nazis do. And Ooh. because of World War II, when the national anthem is played, they, they chose a different method of saluting the flag. And that was to put their hands over their hearts. Because they they were rejecting 
authoritarian fascist ways of acknowledging the images of their nation. That's such an odd gesture as a salute anyways. It doesn't, I mean, now it is a salute because history has put it as that in our minds. But if you just, outside of the history, showed me somebody doing that motion, I'd be like, how is that a salute? Mm-hmm. It's just, it's kind of, that's, that is a fact I did not know. And that's super how, interesting. It, it's similar like to standing on a table. Right. You know, what's the thing that carries that weight? Yeah. No, absolutely. That's wild. Also, I mean, just speaking of fascists, the Hail Hydra thing is also another salute that I thought Ooh. of as well. That was also equally upsetting to see. <laughs> Didn't think about that. That's a good one. I think this is a good place for us to, to pause. We're going to pick up the rest of this episode next time. As with all podcasts, this one's only going to survive if you share it with passion to friends who love a galaxy far, far away. The music is by John Williams, Samuel Kim, Ludwig Gorenson, and the great Kevin Kiner. It would mean the world to us if you would take just two seconds, give us some stars on your podcasting platform of choice. Uh, you can find our binge list online, and you can share your thoughts with us on the Twitter. Anything anything else before we, we kind of sign off? No. I think I think we've done it. We nailed it. He's Daniel Mothershed. He's a force wielding maniac. Many thanks to the TJ Wilson. A great service to the Republic you have done. Glad to be here. I'm Jeff Cook, and I wish I was good at something other than war. Like saving orphans <laughs> from Imperial forces. You know why? Because this is the way. This is the way. This is the way. <laughs>